Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Bad lot of Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves world champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you as we close out the weekend, the first weekend after the All-Star break. The Braves closed out this particular weekend on a bad note on Sunday, but it does not take the shine off yet another series victory and the fact, Corey, that the Braves are closing in on the Mets. They have done some good work since coming back from the All-Star break. Got a lot to talk about as far as the trip out to Los Angeles was concerned, both for the Braves and all over baseball. There's plenty of news and notes and things to get into. But most importantly, as we embark on the next 65 games, Corey, everything the Braves want is right out in front of them. It is, and obviously the division deficit got closer than it's ever been this weekend, which is absolute positive, but uh, certainly you know, things did not break the Braves' way. Sunday, Ian Anderson looking as shaky as I think he's ever looked in a Braves uniform, but uh, as you mentioned, another series win and a lot of opportunity ahead of him. Yeah, and there's you have to look at it as you have some opportunities to win some series and also to sweep some series, and the Braves haven't quite been able to do the latter of those two things. I'm, I'm never one to really complain about winning series because if you do that for long enough, you're the last team standing in all of baseball, but it seemed to be a little bit more challenging than the Braves would like. Closing out some of these games, particularly on Sundays, particularly in day games, and that seemed to be the case once again on this Sunday. And Ian Anderson's struggles we are going to talk about. As always, want to remind you, if you have enjoyed being along for the ride with us here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game for From the Diamond each and every Sunday, we appreciate you making us part of your baseball regimen, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us on the Odyssey app as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. want to make sure you're connected with us, with the show, and, of course, with the station at 92.9 The Game. Uh, Corey, so let's dive in here with this week in Braves baseball and talk a little bit about the series against the Angels because Atlanta is closing in on the New York Mets after taking two out of three from Los Angeles since June 1st. The Braves have gone 34-12. and They're 14-6 and in the month of July. Those are certainly a couple of great records. And over the next three weeks, of course, we've got the trade deadline looming, and we've got nine meetings with the New York Mets in the early portion of August as well. So as you look at this weekend, I, I would break it down a couple of different ways. I'm interested to get your thoughts because you and I were both there on Friday night to get the full – Shohei Otani experience, and what an experience it was. What a ride it was for him. He looked great for six innings. The Braves got to him big time in the seventh inning, won that game. That didn't feel like a night they were going to win, Corey. Sunday felt like one of those where you kind of left a little bit out on the table, but I guess this is just the way that things even out over the course of a baseball season, perhaps. Yeah, and at least in between, you got a really another really strong outing from Kyle Wright, who just continues to look really, really good. Yeah, um, we talked about this in game uh, on Friday. Uh, you know, Matt Olson had a pregame conversation with him. He was the guy who had the most experience against Shohei Otani. You know, told me that splitter is just a completely different animal than everybody in baseball throws. He was 077 against Shohei <laughs> Otani. He goes deep, and what does he go deep on? 
a splitter, and it was just the third splitter home run that Shohei Otani has ever given up. So Matt Olson knew what he was looking for and absolutely made Shohei Otani pay. And I think that's kind of the mark of a great team and a hitter once he's starting to find himself a bit. We're going to talk more about Matt Olson, who seemed to be really rounding into form here over the last few weeks and hopefully prime for a very big second half. That would help out the Braves as they look to chase down the Mets and establish themselves at the top of the National League East. And Shohei Otani, of course, we saw on Saturday, while Kyle Wright was busy throwing another quality start, while the Braves' bats were red hot, while Austin Riley, who we're going to talk about quite a bit here in this week in Braves baseball, and you're going to get a chance to hear from all-star Austin Riley as I caught up with him over the weekend at Truist Park as well. Uh, As all of that was going on, we got to see the other part of what Shohei Otani does so well, and that is hit the ball out of the ballpark, really just, uh, you know, as a next-level hitter, in addition to being a next-level man on the mound, we got to see a little bit of everything this weekend. It was pretty cool, and that pitch that he hit out on Kyle Wright is not a pitch too many guys are hitting out of the ballpark. No, I mean, I don't even know what you say about this guy at this point. I mean, it's just every time he steps onto the field, you expect to see something special. Maybe and something you've never seen exactly. before. Exactly, and you know, this is a conversation you and I had in Game Friday. It, the weird backlash on social media of people growing sick and tired of the conversation around Shohei Otani. I, I just don't understand how you see something that, frankly, no one's seen since you know the, the days of Babe Ruth, and here we are saying, eh, you know. Stop talking so much about this guy. It's, it's, it's insane. It's really strange when it gets into that place where it's like, you know, I understand, you know, variety is the spice of life and all that kind of stuff and several other cliches that could probably be thrown in there. And you, you do get tired of hearing things over and over and over again. But when it comes to Shohei Otani, it's the fact that if you go back over the what, century and a half of organized professional baseball at the highest level, nobody's done what he's doing both on the mound and at the plate simultaneously. No one person has done the things he's doing at the level that he's done it. And I talked to some of the, the writers and Braves media types and whatnot, of course, all weekend long. Shohei Otani was at the top of the mind, and you know he was very much on display and what people wanted to talk about because we're excited to see him just as much as fans who pay good money to you know, sell out Truist Park over the course of this series did as well. And just the fact that you know, regardless of what every other player in baseball does, including the guy on his team, Mike Trout, you almost have to start the argument for MVP with Shohei Otani and work your way back to anybody else if Shohei Otani is, you know, is clicking on all cylinders as he has done for much of the past couple of years. But let's put the Shohei Otani conversation to the side here and concentrate on a conversation that I think is one that we've had throughout the summer and one that at this point might be reaching kind of a a tipping point, if you will, because Ian Anderson struggles against the Angels on Sunday. I think renew the discussion and the question, the debate, if you will, the speculation, especially with the trade deadline here about are the Braves comfortable with the starting five that they have, and in particular for Anderson, because we've seen the walks, the pure number of base runners, the fact that among qualified pitchers, if you were qualified, I saw Dave O'Brien of the Athletic put this out there, the only other starting pitcher among all qualified National League pitchers. That's one inning per team game played, so about, what, 97 innings at this point. Anderson's a couple innings short of qualifying. His whip of almost 1.6 is second only to Patrick Corbin, who has had a disastrous year for the Washington Nationals. If you could imagine for a minute, Patrick Corbin in the Braves rotation, I mean, that's the kind of production that you're getting in some part. And Anderson's record, which is 8-6 and six now, the fact that the Braves have won eight times, is the fact that they've scored six runs per game on average to support him, and that is something that's just not tenable. Yeah, he has the most run support of anybody on this rotation, and Kyle Wright, by the way, has the least amount, and, and he is you know, certainly pitched <laughs> yeah. uh, well above what he's gotten in return. But uh, just a really weird outing from him, too, on Sunday, if you're looking for you know the, the fact that he had pitched so well in those last three outings before the All-Star break. 
Um, then he flipped it on its head in that outing on Sunday. I mean, he had zero whiffs on the swings on his four-seam fastball. He had just five on the 16 swings on that changeup. Um, he just, you know, the fact that the bullpen had to cover six innings right. from a guy who had been so great in the postseason over these past couple of years, it's just, I, I think the Braves really had themselves kind of backed into a corner with trying to figure out what you do next with Ian Anderson. Yeah, and you know there are going to be starting pitchers that are going to be out there and going to be moved with the trade deadline here, you know, closing in in just over a week. But I guess, Corey, you know, the, the Braves, and a lot of folks have asked me, I've done a lot of calls here on 92.9 The Game about what are the Braves looking for at the trade deadline, and I have not been shy about saying, I think if the right deal were out there for a starter, that's something that Alex Anthopoulos would look into because you're always looking into ways to make your club better. The ideal circumstance is that Ian Anderson figures things out, writes the ship, and continues to do the stuff he's done over the past couple of years. And while I love looking at what he's done in October, Corey, in order to earn your spot to be in a rotation come October, you've got to have more consistency than he's been able to show this year, and that's just the results-driven business that is the sport of baseball. It is, and I just don't know if you were to go into a wild-card series right now that you would even have him starting a game, no. which is... A, you know, I'm, I'm, I, a preseason, that statement is, is insane. And that's like, I'm saving that for, you know, hot takes revisited and all sure, that stuff. Sure. But, I mean, it's, but the reality is, it's just hard to, to fit him into the mold, uh, fit him into the, the puzzle right now mm-hmm. with, with how erratic he's been. And that, I think, is the big thing about coming into spring training, a shortened spring training, having two question marks in your rotation, the fifth spot, which was in flux for a better part of six to seven weeks before Spencer Strider finally moved into the rotation. He has been a revelation for the Braves. You mentioned Kyle Wright. He has been, if not for Max Fried, the Braves pitcher of the year, and he's given Max Fried a run for his money. Let's put it that way, because you're not seeing too many guys that come in just trying to earn a spot in rotation who end up coming out of the All-Star break leading the National League in wins, and that's just one of the many accolades that you could throw at Kyle Wright because the strike-throwing, the ground balls, the strikeouts, the you know the ERA, the fact that he's performing at a high level despite not getting six runs per start, I think it just tells you everything you need to know about Kyle Wright. Spencer Strider has established himself as a Rookie of the Year candidate, and you have to be happy with what you got out of Max Fried. And Charlie Morton has started to show, I think, much more good than bad over the last month-plus that he's kind of back to the norms that you need him to be at, at the very least to be holding down the three or four spot in your rotation at absolute worst. If you want to call it Freed and Wright and then Morton and Strider, and then you've got to kind of figure out five again, that's where you've kind of come full circle if you're the Braves. And I know Kyle Muller's thrown extremely well in Gwinnett, and that's all well and good, and that is an option that's on the table, but I just can't help but wonder with the trade deadline looming, does this ramp up the sense of urgency for the brave search to just give themselves more depth? Because it doesn't sound like, and I wouldn't expect, Mike Soroka to be walking into the door to fix all of this down the stretch either. I think that would be a very big ask for him if and when we do see him in the second half. And we hope that it is when, but you just can't be planning around that as any sort of plan A or even really plan B right now, can you? Well, the pre the post, uh, I guess it would be pregame comments from Brian Snicker on Friday when asked specifically about Mike Soroka, he's just you know om- kind of just brushes it off because they just they just don't know at this point. You, know, you can't plan around. They it. can't put any timetable on it whatsoever. You know, there's there's nothing in place in terms of when he's going to begin his rehab. So, I mean, I think you kind of have to consider the fact that they could be active looking for starting pitching. The unfortunate thing is there's a lot of contenders that are going to be looking for starting pitching, and that market is going to be, you know, it's going to be fierce. And um, you know, certainly the, the, the potential of Ian Anderson is much more concrete, I think, than what you could get anywhere else. 
But the fact that you've seen so little of it to this point in the season, I just don't know how you can rely on the fact that it's going to be there when you need it. Yeah, and one other thing, and I do want to turn the page and get to a couple of other news and notes here before we hit a break, and and that is the fact that for Ian, it really seemed like the last few starts he kind of figured it out, especially first time through and second time through the order. Well, every pitcher should you know hopefully thrive the first time through. Second time through it becomes a little more challenging, but that third time through as you start to look at what opposing hitters are doing to him, you look at his ERAs by inning, it's astronomical in the sixth inning, and that's one of the big reasons why he has not been able to complete six innings routinely, which is kind of the polar opposite of Kyle Wright, who's made 19 starts this year. He's pitched six or more innings 14 times, and he's only failed to throw five innings, I believe, once, maybe twice in those 19 starts. So you've gotten a lot out of Kyle Wright that has really, I think, bridged the gap and stabilized the Braves rotation in ways that I don't think that you could have walked in and asked and expected for Kyle Wright to be able to do. So sometimes you have guys that really step up. Other guys, you have to go through it. The course of a baseball season, the course of a career, even for a young pitcher like Ian Anderson, much like a young pitcher like Kyle Wright, there are going to be those peaks and valleys. And how do you stay the course and get back to who you are and what you are and hopefully those results? A couple of injury notes uh, that are going on here. We talked about Mike Soroka briefly. No real update on him whatsoever, but... Unfortunately, the Braves had to place Adam Duvall on the injured list with a sprained left wrist on Sunday. Mike Ford is up from AAA Gwinnett. That, of course, to take Duvall's spot on the active roster. This, I think, points to Eddie Rosario getting a lot more time in left field. Guillermo Heredia will probably be called upon as well in this case. But now, if I'm the Braves, all of a sudden you might be out there looking for an outfielder at the trade deadline as well. And that's not something I thought I'd be saying about a week ago. No, the Duvall situation, I mean, you think the fact that he has 12 home runs, over 300 plate appearances, but that's only a 401 slug, 188 ISO. I mean, those are numbers that along his average, but that's not anywhere close to what uh, had made him such an effective player these past couple years when he's been in a Braves uniform. He's been in more of a straight platoon with Eddie Rosario and left of late. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there, and the, the added element to this is the fact that you've got issues with Marcelo Zuna against left-handers. So are you now looking for somebody who can maybe, you know, help you out with the fact that you're down Duvall and you may need somebody who can rake a little bit against lefties? Yeah, and I tweeted this out when it came out that he was going to go on the injured list. Did you know that over the past about month and a half, his last 34 games, he's posted a 935 OPS. He's been good for a one2 Fangraphs war. He's hit 10 homers, knocked in 20 runs, scored 20 runs over the course of his last 120 plate appearances. So if you're wondering, hey, where's the production out of Adam Duvall? It's been there, and it's been there for about a month and a half. So this is a loss for the Braves. They're going to have to figure it out defensively and offensively as they move forward. we got a lot more to talk about here on From the Diamond. A lot more to get to in this week in Braves baseball. It is Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you along for the ride right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. All right, play ball! Your place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Lots to talk about when it comes to the Atlanta Braves as we always begin our show with this week in Braves baseball. And I wanted to kind of save this headline so we'd be able to have A, a big discussion, and B, I want you to hear from the man as well. We're going to talk about Austin Riley here. And before we do hear from the Braves all-star third baseman who is scorching his way through the month of July, you know, Corey, we saw the breakout last year for Austin. And we were talking about by the time it got to the end of the year, not about who's the third baseman of the Braves' future. That had already been decided. But is this guy going to have a chance to win National League MVP in 2021? We know that Bryce Harper took that hardware home. But here in 2022, much earlier in the season, I'm going to ask this question again. Do you think Austin Riley might be the National League MVP here in 2022? 
I like the production. I will tell you, though, I'm not a betting guy. Vegas, not really high on him. He's still in that long shot territory. Mm-hmm. Seventh in the NL in war right now. But, man, he is just absolutely, as you mentioned, red hot right now. A 16-game hitting streak. Longest active in baseball during that stretch. A 13-41 OPS, 8 homers, yeah. 15 RBIs. I mean, the production's there. there. If, it, if it keeps coming like this, I think the guys out in the desert are going to have to rethink their stance. Man, Paul Goldschmidt still looking really, really good, mm-hmm. but I think Austin Riley's going to have something to say in this whole ordeal. And I think that at this point, Austin Riley's not coming out of nowhere as much as he was in 2021. If you had somehow managed to forget about him, say, when you were filling out your All-Star ballot, well, he did enough to, more than enough, to get himself out there to Los Angeles. And, you know, that was quite an experience for him. And I got a chance to catch up with Austin Riley on Saturday out at Truist Park to talk to him about that experience, about what's brought him to this point, how he feels like this team is doing. And, of course, the man he's playing across the diamond for, Mr. Matt Olson, has also been heating up all of that in my conversation with Austin Riley. Here with British third baseman Austin Riley, all star third baseman Austin Riley, fresh off that trip to LA. The second half has also started. And I guess this is kind of a time of the season where you can enjoy a little trip out to LA, but now the real business is out in front of you. How are you feeling as you head into the second half? You know, I feel good. I feel like my swing's right where I need to be. And, and you know, I feel like team overall is clicking, clicking well. And, um, you know, just trying to play good baseball day in, day out. And, and uh, you know, we got. You know, some big games coming up you know, with the Mets and stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Now, you guys came into the season, obviously, the defending world champions. A little bit of a slow start, but June really changed the script for this entire season. And since June 1st and that 14-game winning streak, things have been, I think, going the way that you guys maybe were expecting it to go. But now you are in the position of chasing down the Mets. How crucial is this stretch in August where you will see those guys nine times over the course of a couple of weeks? You know, it's crucial. And, you know, early on, you know, it is what it is. It's like... Like I said, it's a long season, so you know there's no need to, to panic. And uh, obviously, you want to be ahead, but you know I, I like where we're at right now. So, you know, like you said, we got nine games with them this coming up. So, um, as long as we play our game and, and you know play the ball that we're capable of, you know I, I, I like our chances. How much does the experience of last year and that second half really lend to being able to realize? Yes, it's a long season, and yeah. yes, what you want is still out in front of you. Uh, I mean, it just goes to show anything's possible. And and like I said, this team is is so deep. So you know, I, I knew it was going to click at some point. Um, we're we're just you know got too good of ball players on this club. So um, to be rolling right now it is good. Well, I would say having six all-stars out there in Los Angeles is a pretty good indicator. You guys yeah. have been rolling pretty well. You know, this is your first all-star game. You got to be out there with some of your teammates, right. some of your former teammates, playing for your manager, a lot of great things there. You got a base hit in that game. Were you able to get that baseball? Um, I wasn't. Um, really? Yeah, I. it kind of slipped my mind, not going to lie. I didn't even, like, I, I got the hit and didn't even think about it. Um, so... I don't know where it is, <laughs> but well, it, hopefully I have a couple more hits in an all-star game before my career's over. Yes, hopefully so. Now, that aside, I'm sure that you know as you go out and you are able to kind of be in the collective of the best players in the game, were there any other like little souvenirs or things you were able to bring uh, home? You know, I got a picture of Pujols, um, you know, saw Adam Jones there. Just Like I said, I think just being around those caliber guys I think was pretty cool. I mean, like I said, there's so much going on uh, in a short amount of time. is is almost like, you know, you're just kind of bouncing around from one thing to the next. So it's like, I, you know, conversations were a little limited. And, and um, but like I said, I got, some, got to spend some time with some guys. And it was just 
cool to take it all in. Now, if memory serves, a few winters ago, you were working with Albert Pujols over the winter. What were you able to take out of maybe that interaction well, that you it, had with it him? Was one, it was one day yeah. uh, that I worked out with him. Um, and just really just being around him and, and the way he carried himself in the cage. You know, I worked out. We actually we went through like a legit workout, and then we went and hit. I think the biggest thing I took from him was just how close to you know, attention to detail he was on, on every swing, on every you know drill he was doing, I think was the biggest thing I took. Now, I've known you since the Rome days when you guys were winning titles down yeah. there in the South Atlantic League. And one thing I've noted you know, year over year for you is the hard work is always there. The commitment is always there, whether it's at the plate, whether it's in the field. You've been out there putting in the hours. You have your breakthrough season last year, and now you've had that success at the big league level. So what does that do for you as you look to work through the highs and the lows that do come as a major league ball player? You know, I think just knowing that, you know, I have a, a routine. I have, you know, obviously, you know, I'm going to put in the time, the work, the effort to make sure that, you know, my stuff is where it needs to be. So I think, you know, going through the – I think the biggest thing that I've taken from it all is just like – I think it was good for me to go through that failure in 19. Like just, you know, learn how to, to deal with it and know that I'm going to have to make adjustments on the fly and know that your spot's not guaranteed. And to know that you got to go out there every day and, and earn that spot to, to keep it is something that – is in the memory bank for me, so I, I think that's been the biggest thing. You've turned yourself into a cornerstone piece for a world championship baseball team, but every year things can change a little bit. Obviously, yeah. things have changed across the diamond from you. Matt Olson is now a central figure in the middle of that lineup as well. You guys are, I believe, one and two in the National League in extra base hits. What kind of an impact has Matt had, and what has he brought to this club? You know, he's just a, he's an unbelievable guy, good teammate, and, and fun to be around, fun to, to uh, come to the yard with and hang out with. To me, I think that goes a long way as far as, you know, trying to go deep and win another World Series is you got to have that click and I think he definitely brings that and like I said he swings it royal and you know picks it over there really well as well so I mean you know it's been fun to play with him. Well, I appreciate all your time. Continue success in the second half. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Appreciate it, Greg. That is Braves all-star third baseman Austin Riley here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney back with you in the Kia studios here. And let's talk a little bit more about what Austin Riley has done. Corey, you mentioned a 16-game hitting streak for the Braves third baseman. And as you heard, I discussed with him about all the extra base hits. He and one Matt Olson have been piling up as those two are one and two in the National League as far as that's concerned, but would you believe, if you look back at the month of July, the entire month, at the numbers that this guy has put up, he came into Sunday first in homers, first in slugging, first in OPS, first in hits, first in extra base hits, first in Fangrass War as well, 19 games coming into the day. And by the way, he extended that hitting streak, of course, almost a two wins above replacement. Extrapolate that over 162 games, he'd be a 16-win player, I guess is what I'm saying, long story short. Uh, but hitting well over 400, a way to runs created over 270, and then he's knocked in 20 runs, scored 18 more. All of those marks second in all of baseball. So I, I asked you that question earlier about, you know, is this a guy that can seriously be considered for the MVP award? And when you start to look at somebody going on that kind of a tear, and you think about the three or four weeks when he came up from AAA Gwinnett back in 2019 and went on his initial tear, and you thought, wow, this could be a serious slugger for a long time with the Braves. And then to know everything that has happened in between for Austin Riley, I do feel like this is a kid with staying power who has really established himself, not just as the third baseman for the Atlanta Braves, but as one of the best sluggers 
in the National League, if not all of baseball. And he's a guy who the the, the resume has gotten so much stronger since you, since you think about those that 2019 run. What was the big issue back for him in 2019? He could hit fastballs. Not he really struggled, really struggled against anything that was breaking, right? He hit 202 against breaking balls. The next year, he comes out and he's hitting, you know, teetering around 300 against breaking balls. And he's struggling against fastballs. Then last mm-hmm. year, he puts it all together, that uh, 305 average against the breaking pitches. This year, that's 341 that he's hitting against breaking. That's a hundred and nearly 140-point jump. You've essentially three doubled years ago. your batting yeah, average. Since his major league <laughs> debut when we wondered whether or not this kid was ever going to be able to hit a slider. That's how much yeah. progress he's made in that amount of time. And, I mean, I, I don't know that you can say enough about that, the, the work that he's put in to, to really shore up what's been the issues with his uh, – play at the plate yeah and by the way he's leading the national league in homers in the month of july and has uh, torched eight of those or hit eight home runs during his hitting streak which is now 16 games only kyle schwarber has more home runs in the national league so we are talking about not just the stats that you know let you know that you're among the team leaders or that you're one of the hottest hitters for two three four weeks but one of the guys who is now in the league leader spot or close to it in some pretty important categories and Runs batted in, home runs, those are old school stats, and you may not look at them as the most important thing, but I'll tell you what, I'll take as many guys that want to hit 40 and knock in 100 as possible, and Austin Riley has that kind of potential. I made the bold prediction on 11 Alive Sports Extra last week. My bold prediction for the second half was Austin Riley is going to lead the National League in home runs, and I'm going to stand by that all the way to game 162. We'll see exactly how smart I am once that comes around. Across the diamond, you heard um, Matt Olson, as, uh, as Austin discussed, uh, what Matt has brought to the club. And clearly, you know, having somebody in the middle of the order with him that has been helping drive in those runs. Both of those men in the month of July have driven in 20 runs. That's most in the National League. We're seeing Matt Olson's home runs show up now. And everyone had been wondering, when's he going to start driving in runs? When's he going to start hitting home runs? Well, now he's on that 30-homer, 100-RBI pace that I just mentioned, and that is exactly what the Braves expected out of Matt Olson. And the thing I really like about Matt Olson is the fact that, you know, obviously he comes in and there's all this hoopla around who he replaces. Weirdly enough, if you, if you think about a situation where a guy who is a, an Atlanta-area product, if he were to have come in without all the, you know, the, the, the shadow of the Freddie Freeman stuff, mm-hmm. it's an entire story about this guy coming home and just all, you know, the, the the excitement around that, um, you know, but I, I think the way that, you know, he, he's kind of going through these lulls and now you're looking at, okay, he may have had his ups and downs. He's still in the major league lead uh, with 34 doubles, still on uh, pace to break the franchise record. He's still, you know, going to challenge for uh, on pace to, for the most extra base hits in Braves history. Mm-hmm. Hank Aaron's got 92. He's around 88 pace, 87 pace right now. Um, it, all the, the numbers are there, even if it's felt at times like he's, disappeared the the production has remained a lot more consistent than i think people are actually realizing it is yeah and he is also leading the braves in walks which is one of those other things you want to see how's he going to find his way on base yeah the average has been down a little bit especially after you consider the two or three week tear that he went on when he first put on a braves uniform that had him you know hitting well over 400 and uh, all the doubles really started to show up that first couple of weeks as well but i do think he's settling in here and i do think he's found some big moments that two-run homer off shohei otani in particular uh, just this week, and he's had a handful of those go-ahead home runs, had one against the Mets in that series as well. This is a guy that I think is going to find his moments for the Braves, and that's exactly what they brought him over for, was to be a run producer and come up with big hits and big moments, and he's done that. As we wrap things up here on this week in Braves baseball, I do want to talk about the MLB draft, which took place over the All-Star break as well, as the Braves used their first-round pick on Owen Murphy. They used their compensatory draft pick 
on J.R. Ritchie. And I think these are a couple of guys that the Braves are pretty excited about, and for good reason. They should be. And Owen Murphy, to me, is the really interesting guy. You know, I, I've seen him up close uh, at, uh, you know, at the prep level, um, just what he's able to do. I know he has intentions of being a two-way guy. You know, he's, he's got a really great bat, uh, but uh, certainly doesn't look like he's going to have that opportunity to be able to do anything uh, from not. the plate. But I'd, I'd love <laughs> to see the Braves just be able to give. If you know these guys are high-level athletes and they have that yeah. opportunity, you've seen it work. I know not everyone's Otani, but let's, let's let none of these guys do it. Just give it a chance. Now we'll see how it all plays out. But I know Dana Brown said that they view Murphy as a first-round pick as a pitcher, maybe somewhere around a fourth-round pick. As a bat. That's still not a bad combo. It's way further than I got, and I think that goes without saying. That's why I'm hosting a radio show here on Sports Radio 929 The Game. This is from the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. We'll be back with three up and three down, the biggest stories across Major League Baseball for the week that was, right here on Sports Radio 929 The Game. around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Graham McCulley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Hope you're having a great weekend. Thank you for joining us here on the show. I want to remind you again, you can always take us with you wherever you go if you missed anything on here or you just like hearing it uh, again, maybe multiple times. Maybe that Austin Riley interview piqued your interest. Well, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast or find us on the Odyssey app. All of those things are at your fingertips. Now, Corey, let's talk about six of the biggest stories in Major League Baseball. I like to call this three up and three down. And we're going to start in familiar territory, which is a saga that has to do with Washington National superstar Juan Soto, as this took more twists and turns on the trip out to Hollywood over the All-Star break because – we were sitting here a week ago talking about a what a 15-year, $440 million extension offer the Nationals had uh, given to Soto's camp that they had declined. And then the All-Star game came around, and apparently Juan Soto somehow, amazingly, and I know a lot of people are like, why is this a story? But he ended up having to fly commercial and getting into L.A. at 1.30 in the morning. All he did was win the home run derby the next day and, of course, help star for the National League in the All-Star game. And I don't know that the commercial flight is the biggest story here, though it is most certainly something that's a little bit odd when you you know, have one All-Star and your one job is to make sure that guy maybe gets there in a timely manner. Uh, be that as it may, though, there's a lot of speculation about Juan Soto's future. The trade deadline is looming. I guess we can break this down in a number of different ways, but let me just ask you this. I think the expectation across baseball is becoming more and more likely that Juan Soto gets traded. Do you think that he gets traded here within the next week plus? I think it happens during the offseason. And okay. I know you can always have the, you know, the the point of view that a guy's trade value will never be higher today than it is today. And if you wait, uh, you know, obviously there's going to be more emphasis on teams who are in a position to be contenders now. But I think when you wait to the offseason, you have 29 other teams potentially who could be looking at him. I think you have a lot more opportunity for other teams to get involved. I think from that that end, I think it just provides them more time. And this thing is is moving at such a quick rate. It just makes me wonder if it's really going to ultimately play mm-hmm. to their favor to, to pull the trigger this quickly. There's a couple of things I'll, I'll say bouncing off of that is I think you can eliminate two-thirds of the league from ever being in serious consideration for being involved with a Juan Soto sweepstakes. You're going to look at some of the usual suspects, which, of course, is going to be led by the Yankees. It's going to be led by the Dodgers. I think, really, the, the San Francisco Giants are a club that could throw a lot of money out there. I'd be interested to see how creative some other clubs could get that do have the payroll flexibility and ability to – you know, take on Juan Soto, who this is not to say that, hey, you're going to get Juan Soto and he's going to sign an extension with you because you get him there. But as we discussed last week, 
you could have him potentially, if he does get traded at the deadline, for this pennant race, as well as two more full seasons after that, so he could be involved in three different pennant drives for you. If you're a contending club, even if you have to go year-to-year on arbitration with him, and even if he is hell-bent on making it to free agency, which with Scott Boris as his agent would seem to be a very good possibility, I still think that the risk or the or the price is worth it if you're a contender, but the Washington Nationals are not going to be looking for a bunch of guys who are just beginning their career and a bunch of long-shot prospects. You're going to be looking at top prospects, major league-ready pieces, usually, and I would say not usually, but I would say directly looking at the top two, three, four prospects in your system and perhaps a young player that may just be on a star path himself that's already major league ready and already playing at the big league level. So this is going to be pricey, and that's to say nothing about are the Nationals going to try to dump a Patrick Corbin contract or a Steven Strasburg contract into this whole thing to make matters even more complicated because a lot of clubs aren't going to have the financial ability to take on one of those guys. So Ken Rosenthal reported that they're looking to take four or five top young prospects combo of you know of yep. guys who are major leaguers with low service time and prospects who potentially get him. But that, that's the other element in this, right, is, mm-hmm. is them trying to dump in a contract. I don't think Steven Strasburg, that seven-year, $245 million deal that has four more years, $80 million deferred, is going to happen. And he's got 10 five rights, can veto any trade. That's true. Uh, Patrick Corbin's six year, 140. He has two more years at 24 and 35. He's underperformed, obviously, but he has mm-hmm. $10 million in deferred money from G- uh, November 24 to January of 20, 2026. I think Corbin's the deal that's most likely yeah. to get lumped into this. But you also got to remember this team is expected to be sold and it's looking to fetch somewhere near $2 billion. Mm-hmm. Teams cut costs all the time ahead of sales. They dump future commitments. Corbin would seem the most likely to do that. I mean, but then you have to think, who can really take on the Corbin money? Because as much as it's That's, economical yes. to take on Soto and think, okay, mm-hmm. I can get through a couple of postseason runs. I'm okay, you know, fleecing my farm system a little bit for what this guy could potentially do for me. How many teams can really take on the Corbin money? I think the the Cardinals can do it. The Mets, uh, the, the, the Met, maybe. But the Mets, the Mets now. are right there at that, um, you know, the projected CBT number. Mm-hmm. Um, at two two hundred ninety point one, uh, the Giants could do it. The yep. Mariners could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think the amount of the Padres uh, they crossed the threshold last year. Would they do it again? I think it's it's just a few teams that could do all these things we're talking about. Now here's another one, and, and and let's segue into this other. This is one of the other stories, one of the other sagas that we will look at that could happen as far as the trade deadline is concerned. The Los Angeles Angels. We just saw them come through Atlanta. We just got a firsthand look at Shohei Otani. I can tell you this. He is very exciting. I can imagine very many contending clubs would like to plug him into their rotation and into their lineup as well. But we have also heard it reported that the Angels are not really inclined to trade their superstar player, at least not right now. They have him for the rest of this year. They have him for next year. He'll get to free agency a year before Juan Soto. You and I have sat right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game talking about which one of these two guys would you try to acquire. You said Juan Soto, and this is via trade. I said Shohei Otani, just in terms of an impact player. I think he checks an awful lot of boxes, but it doesn't sound like the Angels are in anything close to the position that the Nationals are in with Juan Soto. And as you brought up some of the different suitors to take on different players and different fits in different places, I know the Seattle Mariners have been one that has, you know, they went out and made a splash in free agency over the winter. It does look like they've got a trajectory toward the playoffs, and that's very much what they're planning towards. I think Shohei Otani makes an awful lot of sense for the Mariners, more so than a Juan Soto and to kind of circle back into how much will Juan Soto cost you, he's making $17 million this year, so the rest of that. 
that means that through arbitration, he probably jumps up to, what, 25, 27 million. And then that final year, he could be making upwards of 35 to 40 million dollars through arbitration if you just go year to year with him. So there's some fascinating economics that are attached to Soto that aren't necessarily attached to Shohei Otani right now, though he is also going to test free agency. You can believe that. And I don't understand the Angels' stance on this, right? I mean, if if you can't win with him and Mike Trout, what in the world makes you think Shohei Otani's going to stay put? Sure. What makes you think that he's going to be like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend six, seven more years of this, and, and I'm going to stay here and hope that we can put it all together and have Anthony Rendon see if he can ever play 162 games in an Angels uniform and you know, wonder if we can put enough pitching around me. Uh, right. I, I just I, I thought it bizarre, by the way, that MLB Network's Dan Plezak had his bold prediction that Otani was going to get dealt to the Braves, but uh, maybe now we're, <laughs> we're hearing the fact that they're, you know, they have no plans on moving him before the, the August 2nd deadline. It's not going to happen, oh. but uh, I, I think I, I, they've got to move him at some point. I just don't get this stance that you're not going mm-hmm. to move a guy that in all likelihood is is not going to be a future angel. Maybe Dan Plesak heard that Shohei Otani was getting on a flight to Atlanta and, well, and go, got man. the two confused. I don't know, but I'm not necessarily expecting the Braves to be able to go all in on a splash that big and particularly and more so because it doesn't sound like at least right now that the Angels are inclined to move him. Now let's talk about something crazy that had nothing to do with trades and had everything to do with offense, and it happened at Fenway Park, and I can't imagine the Red Sox ever want to see it again. And that's what the Blue Jays did to them on Friday night in one of the craziest and most insane drubbings you'll ever find. Toronto won by a 28-5 final score. We thought an inside-the-park grand slam was going to be one of, if not the big, crazy highlight of that game. Corey, we were very wrong because the Blue Jays started scoring and they decided never to stop. They tied several franchise records, including the 28 runs that they scored. They also handed the Red Sox their biggest loss since 1923 when they lost 27-3. to Most runs scored in an inning with 11 of those to tie a franchise record and 25 total runs as they exited the fifth inning was the most by an MLB team through five innings since the year 1900. If I have to talk to you about what happened in 1900 and 1923 and so on and so forth, then you know that it probably doesn't happen very often. And for the Blue Jays, you can enjoy it. For the Red Sox, again, you hope to never, ever, ever see it happen. But that's not even the worst part. I, I, it, it, and I say that, you know, obviously that, that one loss is going gonna, is gonna to stink for a long time. But when you group it with their two previous losses to the Yankees, when they lost by a combined 24 runs six days before, mm-hmm. they had a minus 47 run differential over three games, which is the worst by any team since 1900. The Louisville Colonels did that in 1894. It's been 120 years since a team lost that, uh, that many runs in three games. <laughs> So just, the Louisville yeah, Colonels. Yeah. And I want you to think about that because that team has not been operating in Louisville for quite some time. So, yeah, things have most definitely changed. Yeah, the, the, the Blue Jays, the first team to have 28 runs on the road, hit an inside-the-park grand slam, hit for the home run cycle, and have a player with at least six hits in nine innings. So it's uh, it was uh, quite a wild one there in Boston. Uh, Lourdes Goriel enjoyed himself quite a bit. He was 6-for-7. He knocked in five runs. The Blue Jays had three players with at least five RBI, and for Goriel, he tied the franchise record for most hits in a game with those six with Frank Catalanato. That's not a name nice. I've been able to talk about in quite some time. So we have now name-dropped Frank Catalanato. And again, for the Blue Jays, they that was just setting the tone for the whole weekend. The Red Sox have had a miserable time against Toronto as they have been knocked around in each of those three games. Let's talk about something a little bit more positive that does involve the Red Sox because David Ortiz highlights a seven-man class that is being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame up in Cooperstown. I am very excited for a a variety of reasons for this. Seven-man class 
with what I think are several candidates who are well, well overdue. Ortiz makes it on the baseball writer's ballot. That is great to see, but he's joined by Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, Buck O'Neill, and Bud Fowler. And I think that you might be very familiar with a lot of those guys and have wondered when some of them are going to get into the Hall of Fame, but I don't think anybody more so typifies a Hall of Famer and a baseball person than Buck O'Neill. I am thrilled to see that baseball finally got him in to Cooperstown. One of the most important things that he did, too, was the Negro League Baseball Museum. Yes. Uh, and getting that off the ground, and then you know, under his you know, leadership, uh, the fact that it ultimately in 06, that Congress makes it one of the, you know, the national museums there, putting it the same class you know, with the, the, uh, the Portrait Museum, on and on and on. So just a legacy that went well uh, beyond the game of baseball for him. I do want to throw something out to you on, yeah. on Minnie Minoso. Uh, you think about the fact that he retired in 1964 at the age of 40, came back in 76, played three games for the yeah, right no. White Sox at 52. <laughs> 1980, he appeared mm-hmm. in two more games as a pinch hitter at the age of 56. In MLB history, he's only one of two players to appear in a game in five different decades. It's pretty incredible. And it's not just the quirky things like that that made Minnie Minoso a Hall of Fame caliber player. So it's just great to see some of these guys. Tony Oliva getting his due. Jim Cott played 25 years, pitched 25 years in the big leagues, has been a longtime broadcaster as well. Great to see him getting his due. A lot of the attention will be on Big Poppy because he's been one of those larger-than-life figures around the game of baseball. But this, a very well-rounded, very well-deserved class. Excited to see baseball's Hall of Fame grow by seven. Let's talk about something else that's growing, and that would be baseball's, I guess, inability to accept the shift as part of something that we're going to be doing to the level it's been done the last few years. The Florida State League has started its, I guess, campaign to limit defensive shifts by drawing chalk lines that form a pie shape that go from the outfield corner of the second base bag directly out into the outfield, which means the second baseman and the shortstop cannot cross those lines before the pitch is released. This should be interesting, Corey. I don't know if I expected to see this version of it make it all the way to the big leagues, though. It looks like a piece from, like, Trivial Pursuit. It is a pie piece, for sure. You can see how it got its name. Followed NASCAR and reported on NASCAR for a long time. That is a Mm -hmm. group of individuals who find every tiny little intricate way to push the limit on whatever rules that you place in front of them. Baseball will find a way if this makes it to the major leagues. If it means moving an outfielder out, moving an infielder around, they will find a way. If you say an infielder can't be in that spot, mm-hmm. let's throw an outfielder in that spot. They will find a way <laughs> around this thing. I'm telling you, the, this is going to be tweaked to the heavens in terms of how people find a way around this. Yeah, I, I know there are going to be some adjustments to it, and I'm not one of those who says you need to eliminate it, get it rid of it all together. I can understand the desire to adjust it and to tweak it some. And we'll see what Major League Baseball comes up with. This is just another thing that they're testing in the minor leagues. As we wrap up our three up and three down, we're going to revisit another story we talked about last week because uh, Rob Manfred, while he is out doing great baseball things today with the Hall of Fame growing by seven, he made some not-so-great comments during media availability at the All-Star Game. Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports had this because she asked him about the fact that minor league baseball players are not making a living wage in many cases across all of minor league baseball, to which he said that he kind of rejects the premise of the question that minor leaguers are not paid a living wage and then, you know, got some pushback on that and rejected that premise. Now, this is a great article. Again, Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports. I implore you to go read it because it's interesting. I know already what the reaction is going to be from Rob Manfred because he is Rob Manfred, but Corey... Quickly, can you believe that this is a battleground that the commissioner insists on digging his heels in? A guy who makes $17.5 million a year. I, I want to see Rob Manfred 
have to take a you know a trading places kind of uh, thing here. Let's let's twist it yeah. up, and we will have a trading places version where Rob Manfred gets to go have life on a living wage of a minor leaguer. I think he'll change his tune very quickly. I think it would. And as somebody who rode the buses with minor leaguers trying to make it to the big leagues for four years, I understand that this is a unique struggle. Not everybody is a first round draft pick with a six million dollar signing bonus. A lot of these kids are just trying to go live the dream. And every level you go to. It's the top 1% of that league or that team that goes on to that next level or eventually makes it to the big leagues. It is not an easy thing to do. That wraps up our three up and three down, six of the biggest stories from across all of baseball. Hope you enjoyed hearing about those as much as we enjoyed talking about them. And when we come back, we will take a look around the big leagues and size up both of the divisional races in the National and American League. And we'll do it next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. It's not just Grant McCauley. Corey McCartney with me here on From the Diamond as well. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we embark on hour number two of From the Diamond. We invite you as always to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on the Odyssey app and you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. The station is at 92.9 The Game and the show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. I hope you'll connect with us on all of those platforms. And of course, take us with you wherever you go, wherever you get your podcast. Corey, let's take our trip around the big leagues here. Start over in the American League where the New York Yankees are going to be among the many teams doing some buying as far as the trade deadline is concerned. But we already knew that. However, some big news for them. They lost a key member of their bullpen as Michael King is done for the season. So they figured to be among the many clubs looking for bullpen help. A role this Chapman has been kind of up and down this year. He's also dealt with some injuries, an Achilles problem for him. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. The Yankees have the – they're running away and hiding with the American League East. That's really not the story here. It's, you know, the rich potentially getting richer. We talked a little bit about Juan Soto earlier on, so I'm interested to see if maybe the Yankees dip their toe in that particular pool because if they wanted to make an impact at the trade deadline, I don't know if it gets much bigger. It doesn't. And, and another thing with this team, too, is uh, th- they've got to get that back end of the, the bullpen short up, and, and yep. number one, but then also figure out how in the world they're going to tame the Astros because they hit 151 against Astros pitching this year. Uh, Aaron Judge hit 148 against them. The Astros won the season series 5-2, the only American League team to have a winning record against them. That 151 average is the lowest batting average by against the Yankees by a single opponent in franchise history. They've won two games against them this year, both of those coming in walk-offs. Think about they, they were eliminated by the Astros in 3-0 in, uh, in, the, in the wild card game in 2015. They beat them in the 2017-2019 uh, ALCSs. Mm-hmm. This team has their number. They, they cannot go into the postseason with any roster question marks at all because you know that's what the AL is coming down to is yeah. Yankees-Astros, and uh, that bullpen is going to be chief and foremost for them to shore up to be every bit the opponent the Astros. It has to be. And think about the move that they made a couple of years ago to sign Garrett Cole. It was about getting Garrett Cole, but it was also you took Garrett Cole away from the Houston Astros. That was something that I'm sure that the Yankees didn't mind. But no, they have not been able to get over the hump against that club for whatever reason you want to put in the postseason. But particularly this year, you kind of got a reminder that the Astros are a team that does indeed have the Yankees number. Now, the rest of this division, as you look up and down, again, the, you know, the lead for the Yankees continues to be insurmountable for pretty much every other team. I don't really expect anybody to make a big-time run at this thing, but the Toronto Blue Jays have been a house of fire, and the Red Sox found out exactly how, how hot that flame can burn. 
uh, with that blowout loss that they suffered on Friday night. Toronto has won six games in a row. They're 10 games over 500. They are firmly entrenched in the wild card hunt, which is great for them, but they're 12 and a half games back in the division, just ahead of the Rays, well ahead of the Red Sox. And, you know, the, the Baltimore Orioles have also shored up the bottom of this division. At one point, every team in this division was over 500. And that, Corey, if you look around baseball, is quite uncommon. It is. The deadline is going to be interesting for the Blue Jays because they have inherent pitching needs. They have two really strong pieces in Alex Manoa and Kevin Gossman. Mm-hmm. Ross Stripling has been very good. But after that, Jose Barrios has not been the all-star form that he was before. Yeah. and Ryu is out for this season. UC Kikuchi had a down season, and now he's hurt. So I expect them to be you know active. And then you look at the Red Sox, and we talked about them a few minutes ago and how bad things were in those games against uh, against Toronto. Are they going to be buyers or sellers? I mean, they've got issues at first base. Their pitching staff needs a rotation. Chris Sale's out. Uh, mm-hmm. Can they trust Michael Waka, Rich Hill? You know, Nick Pavetta's been atrocious. Uh, Nathan Eovaldi <laughs> has been an injury concern forever. So that that division is as much as it's interesting in how many of their teams get into the postseason. Mm-hmm. To me, it's equally as interesting in how many of them are going to be active and aggressive in believing that they're still in this. Are the Orioles going to pick somebody up? They could move Trey Mancini. Are the Red Sox yeah. going to do? something or are they going to be to the point that they feel they have to move on from guys i think that's a fascinating aspect for the american league it's really interesting and the orioles only made it more interesting because everybody expected this team to not only finish in last place but to be the doormat of the national or excuse me of the american league east and they simply have not been that and going on that winning spree that they did to get themselves to 500 for the first time in i believe five seasons that is a, a big deal in the overall setup and dynamic of that division because other teams can't march into Baltimore and think, oh, we're going to sweep this four-game series. We're going to take three out of four. We're going to roll right over these guys. It's not working out that way. So there is some attrition, and that's not necessarily to say, oh, well, it's going to keep somebody from catching the Yankees. Good luck catching the Yankees. You're going to need them to start losing as much as you need to win. Uh, but if you look at what the Blue Jays, the Rays, and I guess to some extent the Red Sox, so they're only half a game in front of the Orioles at this point, so they're kind of – in the same position, if you want to get into the wild card, you're going to have to go over two, three other teams in that division to get to that top spot. Moving over into the Central, the Twins got the Tigers out of the break. They took care of business there, and I think they're looking to add to that division lead, obviously. Um, the Brewers and the Padres are up next, though, from Minnesota. Cleveland's got four against the Boston team that's struggling. Then they have three against the Rays, who have been hit by uh, just a glut of injuries, but is always a tough draw, or typically a tough draw and it's obviously a team that has postseason aspirations itself. So if there was a little bit of time for the, um, you know, for either team to really assert itself, you're going to have to do it against some fairly tough competition, particularly for the Twins, who are going against the first-place Brewers of the NL Central and the San Diego Padres, who are in the wild-card race in the National League. Yeah, not only is it the Brewers and the Padres for them, their next 14 also include the Blue Jays, uh, the two at the Dodgers, and they need Byron Buxton healthy. He received a platelet-rich plasma injection in his knee the morning after the All-Star game. Really? Missed both games in the weekend series against Detroit. Uh, they're hoping they get him back Tuesday against Milwaukee. Uh, we know how dynamic he's been. Uh, obviously, injuries mm-hmm. have been uh, first and foremost when you think about Byron Buxton's major league career, uh, but hitting you know 216 this year, 293, 531, 23 home runs. He's got two stolen bases. He's played 73 games, which is exactly what they want from a guy who, you know, not an everyday player, but they they feel like they've been able to manage these knee issues from him. This popping up uh, at this point 
uh, is, is not good news for a team that has postseason aspirations. No, and you're hoping that you can get 140, 150 games out of Buxton. You know he might miss some time. You might need to sit him down, miss a series, that kind of thing. But no, that's not the kind of injury news you wanted as you head into the second half with just over 60 or so games remaining to really close this thing out if you're the Twins trying to hold off the Guardians who have been hot on their heels for a better part of, what, a month, maybe six, seven weeks now at this point in somewhat of a tight race there in that central division. Uh, looking elsewhere and down just below, the White Sox are also in this thing now. They've gotten themselves back up to 500, which may not sound like much, and I feel like a broken record every single week, but they are having to deal with injuries and inconsistency. I mean, Lance Lynn has not come back and given their rotation a boost whatsoever. Uh, they've had Luis Robert dinged up. Eloy Jimenez has been hurt. Tim Anderson has been hurt. And sometimes they're all hurt at the same time, it seems like, and they're just not able to feel the team that you would expect. And then I think a lot of it is just being laid at the feet of Tony La Russa as well. So this has been a, a bit of a, an enigma of a team that you expected to be much better than it is. Absolutely. Yasmani Grandal just came back on Friday for the oh, first time one. since June 11th. Um, so uh, GM uh, Rick, Con- Rick Con was asked over the weekend about you know maybe moves they might make. It sounds like they're pretty much going to stand pat. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got Grandal back, you know, Yoan Moncada, uh, Eloy Jimenez, those guys are, are at least back in the fold. So if you can get some, a little bit more production out of them, I think they feel like they're going to be in a good place. But um, don't forget, I mean, the, the Guardians, uh, they have not had a losing record in the Central since 2015. Mm-hmm. They're this year they're six and five against the Twins. They're eight and three against the White Sox. That's the team I think is the most intriguing out of all these. The one that wasn't supposed to be here. The one that still could go out and make some uh, some moves. I think they need a veteran bat to put along with Stephen Kwan, Oscar Gonzalez, Nolan Jones in those corner outfield spots. They could use some back end of the rotation help. Mm-hmm. I think the Guardians uh, are going to end up making some serious noise all, before all is said and done. In the yeah, and just look at that head to head record against the White yeah. Sox. That's the exact reason why they're sitting in the position they are at second and third. Cleveland and Chicago, respectively, as opposed to Chicago perhaps being in second place, maybe even being closer Mm -hmm. to the Minnesota Twins. It's the fact that the Guardians have had their number. Out west, the Astros decided to come out of the All-Star break and throw a nice bucket of ice water on the red-hot Mariners as they ended their 14-game winning streak by taking their weekend series. But it's safe to say at this point, Corey, that Seattle has a chance to make its mark down the stretch. They're firmly in the wild-card hunt. In fact, they have the number 3 wild-card spot at the moment. We know the AL East is going to be a big factor in the American League wild-card, in addition to what the Yankees are doing, taking one of those playoff spots themselves. I think the Mariners could be in a place where they could do some serious buying over the next week and a half, and they've already shown, as we talked about earlier, they will spend. They had some reality checks, though, right out of the gate. I mean, they were hotter than anybody going into the All-Star break. Obviously, you know, they, they could not get anything done against the Astros losing that series. And then you find out that Julio Rodriguez uh, missed both of the Mariners' games in the second half, uh, day-to-day with left wrist soreness. It looks like he's going to go under underwent an MRI that revealed bruising in his left wrist. So he could end up going on the 10-day injured list. That would be retroactive, at least. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it wouldn't have to miss a full week of action. But that's not good news for a guy who was one of the best stories of uh, the All-Star festivities. But they need him back to his dynamic self. I would love to see this uh, postseason streak for end from them, but that's uh, that, that that's concerning to hear that out of Rodriguez. Yeah, and I mean, this is a guy that hit 80-something home runs in the home run derby. Maybe he hit about 30 too many. I don't know. But he put on the show. He stole that show. Even if Juan Soto won the home run derby, 
It was the Julio Rodriguez show out there. Some good news, though, they did get Kyle Lewis back, and then Mitch Hanniger is supposed to go out and start a rehab assignment sometime soon, so they could have some reinforcements, but you don't want to be without one of the great, young, exciting players in the game. Because if you didn't know who Julio Rodriguez was before the All-Star game, weren't really familiar with him, well, you got a pretty good indicator of just how special this kid is in the All-Star game. Let's take a look at that wild card in the American League. As I mentioned, the Yankees have a firm lead in the East. It's the uh, central is locked down, at least for right now, by the Minnesota Twins. Then you've got the Houston Astros, but it's the Blue Jays with a narrow lead over the Rays for the top two wildcard spots, Toronto having won six in a row. Seattle lost a couple in a row and are now holding on to that final wildcard spot ahead of the Guardians, the Red Sox, the White Sox, and the Orioles, who were all within four games of that. Really interesting, though, as we get to that trade deadline, as you think about those teams that are all right around there, mm-hmm. Andrew Benintendi and Whit Merrifield from the Royals are two of the hottest names on the trade market. Neither one of those guys vaccinated. If you're going to go through Toronto and you think you're a team that has to go through Toronto to get to the postseason, it's going to be something you got to consider about how willing you're going to be to bring those guys in because if if Toronto's going to be in this position, it's going to be something that all the other AL East teams and potentially everybody else in the American League who would be going through Toronto, if they're able to go on a run, is going to have to think about right before that August 2nd deadline. Lots of decisions to make. Trade deadline is looming. That's a look at what's happening in the American League. When we come back, we will continue our trip around the big leagues as we size up the National League Divisional Races. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back in. We continue on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on a Sunday evening. Hope you're having a great weekend. We appreciate you making us party weekend. As always, remember you can subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find us on the Odyssey app. We got to go around the big leagues to the National League. We're going to start in the East because that's, I think, what most people are focused on here in the city of Atlanta because the Braves have been able to close some considerable ground on the New York Mets. Despite that loss on Sunday, the Braves had trimmed that deficit all the way down to half a game coming into the finale against the Angels. Uh, The Mets will be in action against the Padres, who have had New York's number over the weekend. So a chance for this to be, and it still will be, you know, a very tight divisional race heading into the next series for the Braves, which will happen against the Phillies. And we'll talk about that later in the show, but we do have to kind of start. In addition to, you know, sizing things up that are going on between the Braves and the Mets, who have a sizable advantage over the Phillies, who are in third place in this division, with the unfortunate update on some Braves injury news that's come down during the show, and that is that Braves left fielder Adam Duvall, who was placed on the injured list on Sunday, is going to miss the remainder of the season He has a torn tendon sheath in his left wrist that will require surgery. The season is over for Adam Duvall. As we talked about, the Braves needing to maybe go out and look for a little bit of help in the outfield, something we didn't think they were going to need. They're going to be missing Adam Duvall for the rest of the year. Corey, that is a rather sizable piece, I think, maybe bigger than some people realize to try to replace. Yeah, the defense uh, end of it as well. I mean, I think since he's been able to slide into that corner spot since the arrival of Michael Harris II locking up mm-hmm. uh, center field, he's been a, a much more effective hitter. Uh, you know, He told me the fact that he had to patrol so much ground was was having an impact on his legs and being able to, to just slide over to a corner spot. He was able to have a little bit more legs underneath him when he was hitting. Yeah. So I think the production was showing that as well. Um, even if you look at you know the way to run creative plus is the second worst that he's had in any full major league season. Uh, I think that the numbers have been much better of late. Uh, I think so. This is a big blow. I think 
it, it's going to change the way that they approach the deadline. I think you know now you're going to have to look about if you if you you are going to go out and get a starter. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, now that additional outfield help is going to be first and foremost on their wish list. Well, let's talk about a little bit of trade speculation, perhaps for the Braves here. As much as we can continue to talk about Atlanta and New York and chasing down the Mets, I mean we know how close this deficit is now. I mean we're talking about the Braves and, and Mets entered the day with the same number of wins. The Mets' 4-3 and three record head-to-head against the Braves was the only thing that gave them the virtue of being in first place when Sunday began. Of course, the Braves lost to the Angels, and the Padres and Mets still have some unfinished business. And then, of course, the Braves will go up to Philly and look to continue their business of winning series and then have an off day on Thursday and welcome the Diamondbacks to town. That's what's ahead, but we are moving closer and closer to that trade deadline because once you get through the weekend in that Diamondbacks series, August the 2nd will be here before we know it. And we were talking and have been speculating about, well, who might might be available, who might fit what the Braves are looking for. You brought up an interesting one, and it's somebody that had been thrown out on Twitter as well that I've talked about today, and that's Ian Happ of the Chicago Cubs. I mean, he's a guy that can play second base. Ozzy Albies is out. He's a guy that can play the outfield. Adam Duvall is out. And he is a guy who's a productive player, a first-time All-Star this year. That might check some boxes for the Braves. It might. Yeah, you know, Hap is really interesting. He's got a year of control. You know, we know the Cubs are going to be active movers. Will, uh, you know, Wilson Contreras. Yep. Uh, you're going to have him top of the list. Uh, David Robertson top of the list, and guys that they're going to be trying to move. Hap's not somebody they have to move. Like I said, he's got a year of control, but that could make him that much more appealing. Uh, I had mentioned Andrew Benintendi going off uh, from our last break. He could be a really nice piece for them. You know, you're going to get some really good uh, corner outfield uh, play from Andrew Benintendi, and you look at the production from him this year. I mean, he's he's been pretty good against left-handed pitching. He hits righties a little bit better, but and I think you you basically could replicate uh, what you've gotten. Uh, you know, at the height of of Adam uh, Duvall with him. I mean, he's hit 28 percent above league average this year. Um, the homers aren't always there, but I think he could be a really interesting get as well. But I think he's going to be a top of the wish list for a lot of other people. Uh, but yeah, those are two names. I think Ian, Ian Happ a little bit under the radar. I don't think people are really talking about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think he needs to be on the Braves' uh, radar as well. Well, we're talking about him here on From the Diamond, that's for sure. And I think a lot of clubs will be talking about Ian Happ among several Chicago Cubs that could be playing for new teams by the time August the second's trade deadline has come and gone. And again, to go back to the Braves and the Mets as we talk about the trade deadline speculation, of course, the loss of Adam Duvall that could increase the Braves' sense of urgency to shop for some position player help. Nine meetings are going to be coming between the Braves and the Mets following the trade deadline in the two weeks that follows. So there is a lot that's going to be happening over the next three weeks as we turn into the middle portion of the month of August, Corey. Without question. I I was kind of digging into the schedule a little bit. Obviously, those 12 games against the Mets are going to be huge. But I think, to me, what is just as important is what happens in the rest of their schedule. And the, the Mets have eight more games against teams with losing records. That's 37 in total than the Braves have. The last month of the season, the Mets will play 24 games against losing teams out of the 30 they play that month. The Braves play 15 to 31. That game, that nine game difference could be everything, of course, when you line it all up mm-hmm. for them to meet in that next to the last series of the season. So, um, as much as we put a focus on, you know, getting things done against yeah. the series you should win, like the Braves just did against the Angels, the Mets have a lot more opportunities to do that late in the year. Yeah, they do, but I, I don't know if I can say enough about how much of a premium you have to put on these head to head battles, that being the yep. case, or that just being another reason that underscores if you're going to play the Mets nine times in the month of August, you need to win six or seven of those comfortably to feel like you have taken I mean this is a five game series and a four game series I'm not sure if folks realize that as well this isn't three three game series it's five games in four days up at City Field mm-hmm. because there's a double header scheduled in there thanks to the lockout and all the great stuff that happened over the winter and then there's a four game series at Truist Park so there is going to be a lot of action between these two clubs and then at the very end of it all 
These two teams will meet right before the end of the season. So if there was unfinished business at that point, uh, we could have ourselves a photo finish in the National League East. It'll be fascinating to see how all of that plays out and what these two clubs look like. Because not only are the Braves going to be out there looking for help, you know the Mets are going to be looking for help as well. You mentioned Wilson Contreras to the Cubs. I think that's a move that very well could and perhaps should happen if you're the New York Mets. If you can make it happen, that would shore them up because they've had a lot of trouble at the catcher position. And their offense could use any kind of jolt it can get because outside of maybe Starling Marte and Pete Alonso. And at times, Francisco Lindor, there has been a lot of underperformance, a lot of injury, and a lot of just uh, patchwork, if you will, in that lineup. But credit to the Mets. They've been able to hold off the Braves to this point, but it's only going to get harder over the next 65 games. In the Central, the Cardinals heading up to Toronto. They're going to be without a couple of their big players in Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado because they are not vaccinated. And of course, Toronto, and of course, Canada, I should say, has those federal mandates. And uh, those two players not going to be with the St. Louis club. And it's never a great time for any team that's trying to chase down the first-place team in their division to be without two of their best players, Corey. Not at all. They just got Steven Matz back on Saturday, and at least that's of help. Right, uh, you know, They're going to be in need of some rotation help. An effective Matz uh, would be a major boost for them. Uh, but you know, he was out for two months. Uh, basically, you're, you're restarting the season here for a guy that signed a four-year, $44 million uh, free agent deal back in November. He stumbled out of the gate. Well, um, yeah, they need him. They need him. Actually. And I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know if you saw this or not, but he has a torn MCL in his left knee. Oh, well, suffered so in his first start back. So he is going to miss <laughs> oh, several well, weeks. So, wrinkles. Yeah, they do not have Stephen Matz back. Okay. They had him back ever <laughs> well, so mess. shortly. And, and that, I think, underscores exactly what it's like when you're already dealing with various injury issues. And, th- and they haven't had Yadier Molina in quite some time. That's been a point of contention, I think, as well, something that that club has been missing. And this just piles onto that. You lose Steven Matz, then you, and I know it's only a couple of games against Toronto, but every couple of games counts, particularly against a team that's firing on all cylinders the way the Blue Jays are. And the and the Brewers uh, are, are stumbling. I mean, they've they've won 18 games since the start of June. And you think about the way that their offenses, you know, kind of uh, petered. Christian Yelich and Andrew Benintendi are splitting uh, left field duty. They've not been great. Um, you know, again, uh, they they've been talked about. I know Andrew Benintendi's a name we're bringing up more times, and he's probably been talked about outside of anybody outside of his family. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, he's another spot where I think that could end up uh, working for them. Then you can maybe use Yelich and McCutcheon at DH at times if you want to. Um, but I, you know, I anticipate those two teams it, it going down to the wire, and you know, the Cardinals for them, it's like, what are they going to get out of Jack Flaherty? You mentioned mm-hmm. now that they don't have mats. Um, they they just, you know, Miles Michaelis said they, they they've got some guys, but Adam they just it, Adam Wainwright, but they've just not gotten enough effective starting pitching. So I think that's going to be first and foremost for them. Uh, but man, the, uh, the the Brewers' offense has has not been there, and the, the fact that they continue to have the starts they have out of Corbin Burns and, and to have been, and been the position they are. I mean, they should be uh, well and above the, the best team in that division, but that's clearly not the case at this point in the season. No, I mean, and this is another club that has to look and say, hey, how can we kickstart our offense? What are we going to go out and get? I mean, Willie Adamas has been good for them ever since he came over. I think he's among the league leaders in home runs again this year, at least in the top 10. That's great to see, but I don't think I ever thought about the Brewers being led as an offensive club by Willie Adamas at any point. That's one of those guys that you come over or that you get that comes over and maybe everything he does is kind of a bonus on top of everything else you're already getting. But this is a team that can use a jolt offensively. They still haven't gotten the old Christian Yelich back. That would go a long way, but it's been a long time, Corey, since he's been the old Christian Yelich, the MVP candidate, the guy who could win a batting title. That has not been the player that they've had over the last couple of years. Out West, Mookie Betts' his 200th career home run over the weekend. His Dodgers have a nice, comfortable lead in the division as they've been running away from the Padres. 
they've had their own injuries to deal with, whether it's Walker Bueller, whether it was Betts himself, uh, lots of different players that have come and gone and, and, and been up and down at times. Uh, the Padres, meanwhile, they've been helping out the Braves over the weekend by beating up on the Mets. Uh, I think this is one of those cases where you start to look into this wild card race and you see the Braves and you see the Padres and you know that you know maybe you, if you don't win your division, you still have that chance into October, but you'd really like to take one of those division titles so that you don't have to deal with the wild card rat race that it is. Without question. And the Dodgers are really going to be interesting as we get to the deadline, too. They've got Chris Taylor on the uh, IL right now. Whit Merrifield could be a really interesting pickup for them. You know, that's in a guy that, you know, they, he wouldn't have to play an everyday role, you know, but you can move him around the diamond in that utility role. Basically, you know, he more or less would take Taylor's role as that option at second base, all three outfield positions. Um, he's also a guy who's under contract through at least the 2023 season. So that could be an interesting pickup for the Dodgers. Um, by the way, uh, did you see Trey Turner's slide uh, on that pop-up from Jock Peterson on uh, Thursday? Yeah. He, he basically took his sliding, his, you know, he, all the kids are trying to pull it off, but that incredible slide across home plate, he yes. pulled off a catch of a pop fly with that, um, covered 93 feet on a pop-up with a hang time of 4.8 seconds. Um, the dude is just so fast in some ridiculous style points there. If it were possible, like if you put a mocap suit on somebody to to replicate the perfect slide for video games, it would be Trey Turner. Yeah. And I know that's a strangely specific <laughs> thing to be out there looking for, but that guy's an 80-grade slider, and, and that's just one of those things. And not slider pitcher, but slider into bases or plates, or as the case may be, catching a pop-up. One thing I will say about Whit Merrifield is the last couple of years he has really regressed to the point where you almost wonder if Kansas City held on to him too long. He's in his age 33 season. He is OPSing just under 650, his OPS plus down to 81. And while he does run pretty well, his contact skills and his walk skills, his on-base skills, let's call him that, have really not been what they were when you think about the guy that was leading the American League in hits and seemed to be a really useful player, and he was through 2019. It just hadn't been the case the last couple he's, of years. He's only going to make $6.75 million and cost you money if you're the Dodgers. I mean, I mean it's nothing, I mean, right? I mean, it's yeah. – but, but we're talking about them at the deadline. I'm interested to see what the Padres do because they may be one of the, the weird contenders who actually sell because they have so many guys in their rotation. They have a surplus. they got to create payroll to get away from that luxury tax. So they could move a Mike Clevenger in his you know, $5.75 million uh, CBT hit. Blake Snell in his $10 million CBT mm-hmm. hit. So weirdly uh, talking about a contender with arms to move, but the Padres could be in that position to do exactly that. It would be really strange. I mean, and you would know that you'd need to move it to get something that you want. You're not mm-hmm. just going to be selling for prospects yep. like most teams would be in that case. But – that could be something fascinating to look at, and we'll see how it all plays out. As far as the wild card's concerned, the Braves have a comfortable lead on that top wild card spot. They're followed by the Padres, the Cardinals for the moment. You do have the Phillies and the Giants, but the Phillies, while they have been better since they fired Joe Girardi, they have fallen on hard times lately. And, of course, we see the Giants have just not gotten anything going this year, and I don't know that they're going to have enough steam to be able to make up any particular ground in the National League West, which has to be a disappointment after winning how many games last year? 106, 107. 107 games. 107 games last year. Anything is a disappointment after that, probably. But really, this year has not come together for them, and they may not be able to climb over the pile when it comes to the wild card. But that's a look at what's happening across the National League as the Braves and Mets are in that showdown in the NL East. It only figures to get tighter and tighter as we go along. It is the Brewers on top in the Central and in the West. Of course, it's the Dodgers with the Braves, Padres, and Cardinals holding on to the three wild card spots. 
That'll wrap up our look around the big leagues. When we come back, though, here on From the Diamond, we're going to get back into our Braves discussion. Lots to recap from a very busy weekend against the Angels and, of course, get you set for the week to come as well. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back here. This is From the Diamond. Graham McCauley, Corey McCartney with you as we close out this edition of the show from the Kia Studios. Again, this is Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. You can catch us here every Sunday from 5 to 7. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate your support. And now... It is time to talk about the week to come for the Atlanta Braves. We've talked a lot about the week that was. We've also talked about the big news of the day, which is not only that uh, Ian Anderson struggled in a loss to the Angels on Sunday, but the Braves found out they're going to be without Adam Duvall for the rest of the season as he does have a wrist injury that will require surgery. So as we talked a little bit about it, Corey, I mean, I don't know that people realize because of the slow start how good Adam Duvall had been of late, but over the past month and a half, OPSing well over 900, the power was there, the run production was there, the defense was there. This is going to be a, a tough blow for the Braves, but if it was to happen, and I, I know this is kind of a, you know, a double-edged sword, if you will, you'd like to know going into the trade deadline rather than right after the trade deadline because you don't have those waiver trade abilities anymore. You pretty much have to do all your shopping beforehand, and we know Alex Anthopoulos thought about that last year, particularly when he got to do Rosario. Yeah, I mean, we were just having a conversation a few days ago, and we said, I don't expect them to do a whole lot at the de- deadline. Maybe they look to do something in the rotation, but more yeah. than likely it's going to be bullpen. a bullpen play. Yeah. But now you're talking about Ian Anderson really struggling on Sunday with arguably his worst outing he's had in a Braves uniform. And now the loss of Adam Duvall, who you mentioned, I mean, through May, he had a, the end of May, he had a 40 way to run create a plus. He follows that with 134 in June, 166 in July. What mm-hmm. happened during that time period? Michael Harris the second shows up, he gets yep. to move into a corner outfield spot, is a lot more comfortable in where they're where they're asking him to play, as he told me, as I mentioned earlier, had a lot more legs underneath him when he was at mm-hmm. the plate. Um, but yeah, they're in a position now where, you know, you've got some time, but they're entering a market where there's gonna be a whole lot of teams looking to make similar upgrades uh, in terms of rotation if they want to do that. Uh, in that outfield spot. So uh, the the competition is going to be fierce as they try to make the needed upgrades. It definitely will be. And as we sit here on a Sunday night wrapping up the weekend and talking about the Braves and the Mets and the NL East race, which we just discussed a little while ago, I mean, it's one game separating these two teams. I thought it was interesting. Buster only tweeted out a little bit earlier on Sunday morning that it's not just that the Mets gave away their lead. It's that the Braves have been taking it away from them. As of that half-game margin, which was as of the end of the action on Saturday, the Braves had eliminated and melted away a 10-game deficit that they had. Ten and a half games total, but 10 games had disappeared off of that from the way that the Braves had been playing since the start of June. Uh, since June 1st, the Braves 35-12, and 12, which is a 123-win pace over a full season. That from Buster Olney. The run differential for the Braves over that time is 100, the plus 100. That's absolutely absurd, as if the 123-win pace was not uh, the Braves have been uh, slugging at a 487 clip. Their pitchers have a 314 ERA over that time. So, again, as Buster said, the, the Mets didn't so much surrender their lead in the East as the Braves have been taking it away from them, and that's where we find ourselves on Sunday night. The Mets and the Padres still have some unfinished business as we're talking now, but we know that this is a manageable deficit with a whole bunch of games between these two clubs. But the next up for the Braves is not – a battle against the Mets. It's three games against the Philadelphia Phillies. That'll be Monday through Wednesday. There's an off day on Thursday, and then the Braves come back home after being on the road up at Citizens Bank Park. 
and they'll welcome the Diamondbacks to Truist Park for the weekend, Friday through Sunday. It's Alumni Weekend. Braves Hall of Fame is going on. I'm looking forward to catching up with a lot of the former Braves and having some fun on Saturday with that. But these are just, Corey, as we always talk about, two more important series for the Braves. These are teams that you should beat. I mean, the Phillies are going to be a little bit tougher, I think, than the Diamondbacks, but these are teams that the Braves should take series from. They've got five against the the Phillies, and you, you think outside of, of Kyle Schwarber, who has been really, really good. Uh, you know, he, uh, him and Reese Hoskins have honestly carried that offense in June and early July. You look back since July sixth, they've averaged just three point one eight runs per game, which is twenty sixth in baseball. Um, Nick Castellanos continues to be extremely bad. Um, he, I mean, he's just been really, yep. I mean, a 6'10 OPS. And no uh, Bryce and, Harper yeah, on and, top of all that. Yeah, Castellanos has a 6'10 OPS in 72 games leading into the All-Star break. Um, he entered the weekend 156 out of 157 qualified players in Fangraph War. That was one of your big upgrades. You went out and got in Schwarber, you got Castellanos, hoping you could pair them with Bryce Harper and have this really elite bashing offense. Um, you, you got one of those guys out, uh, one of them's not producing. Uh, Kyle Schwarber can only do so much, and so I, I think that's going to be the guy, when you look at this offense, uh, that the Braves can't let Kyle Schwarber beat him. Yeah, as far as the probables in this series are concerned, Monday it's Max Fried against Ranger Suarez. Tuesday, Spencer Strider against Aaron Nola. And then you will have Charlie Morton against Kyle Gibson in that series finale on Wednesday. So you are going to see Aaron Nola in this series. You don't see Zach Wheeler, so I guess that's a a net positive if you're the Braves. And we'll see Max Free get his first start out of the All-Star break. Same for Spencer Strider. Had a lot of folks asking, you know, should we be concerned that Max Free is not starting the first game back, that he wasn't in that showdown, no pun intended, with Shohei Otani on Friday. But really, the opportunity to give him a few more days coming out of the All-Star break, I think, was something that you have to do at that time. And you know, the Braves won that series against the, the Angels, and I think they felt pretty good about their chances with whoever was going to be on the mound every fifth day. I don't think you have to be the least bit concerned that Max Freed was not going to go out and immediately get a start. I mean, you need Max Freed to be, you know, at his optimum at the end of this season, not yeah. uh, not worrying about him getting a start, uh, per, you know, initially out of the gate here, uh, you know, uh, to start off things out of the all-star break coming against the Angels. But um, he's had a lot of success in the past, obviously, against this uh, this Phillies lineup. Uh, would anticipate, you know, as sharp as he's looked of late. Mm-hmm. There's only one guy, uh, two guys in this roster who have taken him deep, and uh, one of them is not Kyle Schwarber. So uh, I anticipate him to have a really another strong start. Yeah, so you have Max Freed being able to set the tone to open the series. That's what you expect out of him. Now, Spencer Strider, the last couple of outings, he has not really been able to go as deep in the games. I thought it was really interesting, you know, the, the continued conversation that there is around Spencer Strider and is there an innings limit. Are the Braves going to shut him down? Are they going to move him into the bullpen? All of those things. Bryce Snitker talked at length a couple of days ago before a game about that and said, you know, we really don't feel like that's beneficial, the idea of limiting his innings and not utilizing him in the role that he's in right now. But he said, we want to use common sense and manage it as it goes along. And sometimes that means, like the last couple of starts, Strider either wanted to stay out there or go back out for another inning. And they said, look, nope, we've already reached the, you know, the allotment of pitches we're going to use today. You know, save all those bullets and, you know, focus on that next start. And I think sometimes, you know, that's as much maintenance as you're going to need to do because, yes, he is going to throw a career high in innings if he remains healthy. And you imagine that they're going to be pretty quality innings based on what we've seen from him. And, you know, Spencer Strider has become an integral part of this rotation. I know the potential it was always exciting, was always there. But with the struggles of Ian Anderson, the breakout that you've gotten from Spencer Strider and, of course, from Kyle Wright 
has helped answer questions in the rotation when one guy you thought was a pretty solid piece has become a little bit more questionable. And the thing with Strider, too, is like even if you want to think about you know how much a pitch count or an innings limit or whatever you, however you want to couch it, yeah. how much you want to use him going down the stretch, it's all about finding ways for him to continue to be effective in the role that he's asked to be. Mm-hmm. So last time out, he, you know, he, 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 he throws 51 uh, four-seamers in that one. They hit 111 against him. As long as he's productive in the allotment of time that you have from him, that's the biggest thing because you want – obviously you're trying to manage a young guy here. But the, it's it's what does he do in that time when you feel like we're ready to pull the plug? I think that's going to be the most interesting thing. Yeah, and well, here's the thing too is, and it's not even about you know where do you pull the plug. I mean, maybe that's from start to start. Where do you yeah. decide is is the ad, the adequate amount of usage that you've gotten in that particular day? I think it's more so about just knowing how much to ask from him from start to start. That's going to be how the Braves use that as a barometer. But this is not. You know, Spencer Strider needs to go out there and throw seven or eight innings every single time. I mean, we've noticed from the way that baseball is being played across all 30 teams, complete games are pretty much at an all-time low, and that's year over year over year. There just aren't as many of those. He's not being asked to do that. I think that if he's able to throw five, six efficient innings, and more times than not, he seems to be able to throw those six, then that's the role the Braves are going to be looking at him in. They're not looking to move him out of the starting rotation, I think, and back into the bullpen simply because of an artificial innings number. And I think that's the point that Brian Snicker was really trying to make was that we want to use common sense with this, and we feel like, yes, he can help our team in the bullpen. That goes without saying, but he's helping your team in the starting rotation, and that seems to be a far bigger need right now than figuring out if you want to put Spencer Strider and his 100-mile-an-hour fastball in the bullpen because – you went out and you got Kenley Jansen to close for you. You've got A.J. Mentor out in that bullpen. Tyler Matzik is back and healthy. You hope he's going to be a big part of that bullpen. You've gotten some, I think, really standout performances from some you know, unsung heroes like Jesse Chavez or Dylan Lee. Like You've got a pretty yep. strong bullpen group, and I know Will Smith struggled some and Darren O'Day has had some struggles, but if you're going to go out and make your club a little bit better, I think that finding some relief help is something to focus on at the trade deadline. It'll be interesting to see if they go after a starter, given that Ian Anderson has struggled, but then you have to think about how would we replace the productivity of Spencer Strider. That's a much bigger and more nuanced and and and, and taller order in general to think about if you're Alex Antopoulos in the Braves. Yeah, and if you think it's easy to say, okay, move Spencer Strider over to the, the bullpen no. and go out and go just find somebody in the open market, the possibility of them having the level of success that he, that you've gotten from Spencer Strider at times this season is, is not likely. I mean, I realize the last six times out – his ERA has been three eight six. You know, the last time you saw him, you know, the, he th- allowed five earned runs against the Nationals. He's going to have those moments where he's still a rookie, and things are going to have to be adjusted. And he's the as the as as they cliche says, as the book grows on him, mm-hmm. he's going to have to adjust as they adjust. Uh, but the height of what we've seen from him, from a guy who has the arsenal, that's you know really uh, there's not a lot like it in all of baseball. I don't no. know why. I mean, I'm sure you've had this on your Twitter mentions. People just saying, ah, he's a, he's eventually a bullpen or just put right. him back. You know, th- th- why that's just other people like yeah, he should just close for you. Just yeah, yeah, lock him it. in a closer. Yeah. It's like oh, so you're gonna a pull him out of the, the rotation when you don't have a viable replacement for him, and you've got somebody else struggling, and that's a whole different topic. But they're they're intertwined. And you're going to displace the closer that you went out and paid $16 million to? I don't see that happening. Why create two rotation questions? Yeah. Why, why, would, you, why, why would you mess with a situation where you're going to end up having two questions with your rotation? Strider, you can manage the innings with Strider, but still get the effectiveness that you want out of him. If you, if you need to go out and make an adjustment in the rotation, you feel like that's needed for Ian Anderson. Don't make Strider 
uh, you know, a casualty in all this. Yeah, so that will conclude our TED Talk on Spencer Strider, right. his innings usage, and anything else that might have to do with it. But no, it is a fluid situation, and, and Brian Snitker did say, I mean, like, it's common sense is what we're going to use to dictate the usage of Spencer Strider throughout the rest of the year, and he is so much more valuable, and this is me talking, in the rotation than he is in the bullpen, in my eyes, both in 2022 and in the future, because he's proven that he can be a major difference maker and a dynamic arm there. He's going to have his hands full on Tuesday, though, as he goes up against Aaron Nola. When you talk about dynamic arms, the Phillies are hoping that Aaron Nola is going to be able to help them as they try to battle towards one of those wild card spots. They're going to need all they can get from him. And then Charlie Morton will close things out against Kyle Gibson. It was good to see Charlie pitch well against the Angels in his first start out of the All-Star break. I think the results have been far more good than bad lately, but I don't know if I'm ready to say that he's completely back but it feels a little bit more reminiscent of the Charlie Morton that we were more accustomed to and expecting to see here in 2022. Yeah, and I, I mean, he obviously was going into a really weird situation on the Friday night in the opener against the Angels when you've got a guy in Otani who's fanning 11 and just, you know, through six innings yeah. looked like he was just absolutely unstoppable. Um, you know, but you go, I mean, you take this thing back to, you know, basically since his starts June 5th, I mean, he's got a 307 ERA on that, but he struck out 75 guys over those nine starts. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the stuff that wasn't there, guys are hitting 187 collectively against him. What wasn't there before with the swing and miss stuff has found its way back. Obviously, there's going to be moments. He hit weirdly hit two guys on the back foot with those curveballs. That was a really strange thing to watch, but um, I think he's he's finding his way. It took him a while coming back from that that injury. Um, you're, I think you're finally seeing I'm not I'm not like you. I'm not 100% willing to say this is back to being the Charlie Morton of old, but I think we've seen enough of late to feel like it's headed in the right direction. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. As you do look through the trade deadline and you think about what kind of arms are going to be out there, and this kind of dovetails into the Spencer Strider discussion ever so slightly, and maybe even the Ian Anderson discussion, depending on how Ian's able to go start to start, which is what I feel like the Brazier at some point have to be feeling like they're going with him at this point because we're no longer talking about a small sample size, and there have been some really rough ones. You mentioned this one on Sunday was pretty rough for him. That one in Philadelphia last time out is probably the worst that I've seen him look because he was getting hit hard. It wasn't even the walks. He was getting hit very hard. But some of the names that are out there, uh, we talked about Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs, but he hasn't really been the same guy in a couple of years, and he's owed an awful lot of money over the next couple of seasons if you were to pick him up. The Cubs, I'm sure, will be happy to unload him if you're interested in Ian Happ. That could be uh, one of those things. Uh, Folks have thrown out Madison Bumgarner of the Diamondbacks, but this is not the same guy he was four or five years ago either. I mean, same thing for Hendricks, who was never probably the upper echelon arm that you looked at with Bumgarner's postseason resume. Zach Grinke is another one, but I, I don't know that there's just a lot of tread left on that tire, and those are just not... Uh, really viable answers. You already got one guy struggling, and so to think about even messing with your rotation beyond maybe trying to add some depth seems like a very tenuous place to be. It does. I mean, Luis Castillo, uh, obviously Frankie Montas, Tyler Malley, you know, uh, Jose Quintana, those are going to be the names at the top of the list uh, that everyone's going to be going for in terms of starting pitching. Yeah. You're going to have a whole lot of teams vying for those those big arms, including you know, potentially, I know they said they, they, they're not going that direction, but the Mets could even do that. The Dodgers sure. could be in the mix for those guys. I mean, that I don't know that the Braves want to get into that kind of a, of a bidding war. So I'd be interested to see. You know, That's one thing that we haven't necessarily seen Alex Anthopoulos do with the deadline is go out and get that big time uh, starting pitching name that's on the market. But uh, he may be pressed to do that with the way that Ian, Anderson, Ian Anderson's been playing of late. And we'll say this for Alex Anthopoulos as we wrap up here is that, you know, he has been so creative in the deals that he has made for this club that they have made the Braves better each and every time he's had to go out there and address his team's needs around the trade deadline. And 
He'll be asked to do that kind of thing again, perhaps, to help supplement this club as they look to track down the New York Mets with a very tight race as we head towards the trade deadline and the close of the month of July. That'll wrap us up here on From the Diamond for this week. As always, we appreciate you making us part of your weekend. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. Dom, thank you as always. Appreciate you. We will catch you next Sunday right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Dukes and Bell.